0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Jennifer Burns on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand, and the American Right. When I was a young man growing up in Kansas, I fell in with a bunch of fellows who were libertarians, at least that's what they called themselves, I thought that this might have something to do with the library, so I studiously avoided the topic. Uh, However, they wanted to explain to me exactly what libertarianism was, and I have to confess that what they said was very compelling to my 16-year-old ears. The basic notion was that we should be able to do whatever we wanted, so long as we didn't harm anybody, and that when we had something to sell, we should be able to sell it, and when others had things to sell, they should be able to sell it to us and that authority should get off our backs. This was a very, as I say, compelling philosophy for a teenager such as myself. I didn't really know much about its origins, although I had heard of Ayn Rand, of course, until I read Jennifer's terrific book. She does a great job of explaining the origins of many of these ideas uh, as they were given birth to by Ayn Rand in the 1930s and 40s. Her life is a fascinating one. She uh, is full of uh, contradictions and brilliance and a lot of other things. I guess one of the other things she was full of was amphetamines, she became an amphetamine addict and that has something to do with her life as well as you will learn in this interview. Without further ado, here it is. Hi Jennifer. Hi Marshall. How are you today?
1: Doing pretty well.
0: That's good, you're in California, is that correct?
1: I am in California, and I have to say, it is not sunny California today, much to my disappointment.
0: I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I I should tell our listeners that we have Jennifer Burns on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific new book, Goddess of the Market, um, Ayn Rand and the American Right. We'll come back to Ayn Rand's name in a second, won't we, Jennifer? But uh, I can tell you that I lived in California for a number of years. I was a graduate student out there, and I think I'm the only person that left California because I didn't like the weather. It's boring. It's boring.
1: Yeah, well, today we're getting a little variety of the kind I don't particularly enjoy. Yeah, but you know, that's it, all
0: right. does, it doesn't snow in California. Well, it does in the mountains, but I, I it just. It
1: does snow in the mountains. Yeah, for it shows sure. a
0: lot in the mountains. But I just thought it was. Uh, this was in the Bay Area, and I just, I just was. It was uh, there's no fall. I don't know. No fall. But um, enough about that. Uh, let me um, say, uh, by way of introduction, that uh, as everyone knows who listens to this show, I have read this book, and I read this book cover to cover over a series of nights, uh, uh, neglecting my wife and children. And uh, I, and I, it's really uh, it's terrific in an, in a number of ways and and I don't want to uh, flatter you to high heaven but uh, it, it's a it's a remarkably apt topic because of the undercurrent of interest in Rand's life uh, in the United States and uh, as I say in the uh, introduction to this interview uh, it even touched me as a as a young man in Kansas where I grew up uh, my mother was a big fan of Ayn Rand and she always had these thick books around. And she said that uh, Ayn Rand was a genius. And this was in the middle of Kansas, of all places. So the influence of uh, Rand, and in the late 70s, early 80s. So the influence of Rand is is, uh, is still with us today. And uh, I was so pleased to be able to read about her life, which is really quite extraordinary. Um, it's not a life I would have wanted to live, but it's a really uh, extraordinary life. And uh, Jennifer, you've done a terrific job of uh, telling the tale. So uh, that was just Uh, by way of congratulations to you. Why don't I ask you... Sure, my pleasure. Why don't I ask you to begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and so on and so forth.
1: Um, Let's see. I grew up on the East Coast, and I've always been a sort of history buff and a big reader. Um, And so I guess I got into history because it allowed me to read books for a living, which is just fabulous. Um, And I pretty much knew I wanted to be a history professor as soon as I figured out there were such people in the world. <laughs> um, I wanted to be a journalist for a long time, and then when I got to college, I sort of realized, Oh wait, I could be a college professor
2: mm-hmm. and
1: um, pretty much stuck with that ever since mm-hmm. so um, it 's been great. It takes a long time to get there, but for me it 's really been worth it
0: mhm and then uh, you went so you, so you went to college and you went on to graduate school. How did you come to study um, I don't know how to characterize, you know, we have so many disciplines and sub-disciplines in history now. Would you call this uh, a modern intellectual history or, or political? I don't know what to call it. What would you call it?
1: You know, I do consider myself an intellectual historian, and that's primarily because that's how I was trained. So my advisor in graduate school, I went to Berkeley, was David Hollinger, who is really a, a classic intellectual historian and um, but very open to non-traditional topics and was very open to doing Ayn Rand as intellectual history Um, you know but I started with a pretty strong interest in religion and the question for me was do I study religion as social history or as intellectual history and coming to Berkeley to work with David Hollinger really meant I was going more in the intellectual history direction and then before I knew it I was studying an atheist Um, and so I've sort of moved away from that first interest, but that was really, I sort of backed into this project via my interest in religion, and then I became interested in irreligion and Ayn Rand and sort of went from there.
0: Mm -hmm. I see. That's an interesting path. Um, What did Hollinger say when uh, you said that you wanted to write uh, Rand's biography? I should tell our listeners that a biography is a very unusual dissertation project. In, in my day, yeah. which is which is 100,000 years ago, uh, th- I, I I don't know anybody that wrote a, a biography just so as a dissertation project. So well, what did he say, and how did you swing it? I admire you for doing it, by the way.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I actually – it was the first idea I had when I came to graduate school, and I checked out like 25 books on Ayn Rand and came to him and said, can I write this paper on Ayn Rand? And he said, absolutely. He got this sort of gleam in his eye. And then I thought, no, 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 wait, I'm not sure. And so I actually – for the next year pursued more seriously my interest in religious history primarily in the nineteenth century but i still had this thing about rand in my head and then the second year i said okay now i'm going to give it a go and then once i started going on the project it just boom went like that mm-hmm. i did have a few people warn me um the biography angle was part of it. You know, biography or, or focusing on one person can be too narrow. And then I did have some people say, you know, Rand is a is a really difficult topic. She's not taken seriously. People think she's a joke. You know, you might uh, really not get anywhere with this in terms of my career. And it's just so interesting for me as a sort of time stamp. You know, this was 2000, 2001.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That was a reasonable view to have within the academy, I think, mm-hmm. at this point in time. So much has changed and Rand's profile in in American culture has become so much more dominant and influential that I don't think anybody would have that reaction today. Mm -hmm. And so I I timed it really right, but when I started this project, it looked fairly risky Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: now it looks like, you know, this great decision that I made. Um, But it was a bit of a risk and I think the other thing is people always say to me, oh, you did your dissertation at Berkeley, Berkeley is so liberal, it's so left, how could they have handled this topic? And I think that's sort of a vestige of the 1960s Berkeley image that that a lot of Americans particularly have. But you know, Berkeley is a serious you know <clears throat> research university doing top class research, and they they love being on the cutting edge, and they love the idea of me investigating a really controversial
2: mm-hmm. figure
1: about whom not a lot was known, at least by historians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of fit into this iconoclastic tradition within the Berkeley history department, mm-hmm. which is tackling topics that other people haven't Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: so I got you know a lot of support and a lot of encouragement not just from David Hollinger but from a whole range of faculty at Berkeley so
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that was really crucial um, Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. me feeling like it was okay to go ahead and do this topic
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well I mean also it's a uh, you know I have to say because I worked in publishing for a while um, commercially speaking it is a uh, it is a dead ringer I mean a a lot of you know uh, and uh, Ayn Rand has terrific name recognition as they say in the industry and so yeah. uh you know it's it's really the kind of book that a commercial or a trade press would would love to get their hands on.
1: Right, and that's not always a good thing within yeah. academia, right? So um that's been one of the challenges for me how or with this book, how do I um you know, draw upon the fact that she does have name recognition without sort of selling out my uh, intellectual soul to it's writing a potboiler yeah. about it, Ayn Rand, you yeah. know, it, so... It's, um,
0: a, it's a tough thing, and I think you negotiated it, it, it very, very well um, uh, it, because the book is very readable and it is actually a biography. Uh, the moments where you digress and talk about objectivism and and her philosophical system are, are uh, from my perspective, thankfully, not, not too long or too dense. Um, I'm thinking of... Uh, well, I won't name any names. <laughs> <But> <laughs> no, don't name names. I won't name any names. And but yeah, no, you do a nice, nice light touch of uh, of 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 her uh, understanding of uh, objectivism and libertarianism and, and individualism. So I, th- I think that you negotiated it uh, really very well. And I should also tell you that the word is out. Uh, this book, I, I had not heard of it, but uh, a listener to the show in Australia of all places. Um, wow. Oh no, no, not Australia. Actually, he's in Israel. Yeah. What am I saying? Yes, he's in Israel. Uh, recommended that I uh, contact you. He had seen the uh, promotional material for the book or found it on Amazon. I don't know where he found it, but he said, you know, you really you really should do this. It's very interesting. And I said, you know, I really should do that. And uh, so the word is out, and that's that's really good. So kudos to the people at uh, OUP for, I don't know, spreading the word about this good book.
1: Yeah, they're, they're doing a terrific job.
0: Yeah, so the um, well, one of the things that interested me is that there is no uh, – uh, uh, that there was no Rand biography before yours. Why is that?
1: Well, you know, I think that Rand has been such a polarizing figure that most of the literature about her has been sort of either or. Um, You know, you're either for Rand or you're against her. And um, it's often come from people who knew Rand personally or were... Um, involved with her at some level in their life. So they, they take this kind of split either way. There have been some there's some excellent memoirs early in the nineteen eighties that are good source material but but not um you know not a biography per se, more of a biography slash memoir. Mm-hmm. The other thing um is that Rand's legacy has been very jealously guarded um by those who consider themselves the true inheritors of her thought and the sort of uh, orthodox objectivist community has um, been prone to schisms and breaks and uh, internecine warfare and all this kind of thing. And so it's made it, I think, difficult or or unsavory for people to sort of get near it. It just looks too um, too controversial, too personal. And I think I really caught that community at a pivotal moment when um, those who have controlled Rand's papers and um, her legacy were actually realizing that protecting it um, so carefully and guarding it so jealously had actually had the the wrong effect of making her less influential and less appreciated um, and sort of scaring away anybody who might want to learn more about her Mm -hmm. so at the point when i started my project her papers had been collected had been professionally archived and cataloged and were on the verge of being widely open Um, And I was only the second scholar to get in there Mm -hmm. and the first to write a full book on it. So my timing was really advantageous in that. And, you know, as a doctoral student, if her archives hadn't been open, this Mm -hmm. project would have died immediately. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they were willing to have me come in, give me free reign, and then allow me to publish Mm -hmm. um, what I found, I think really made a difference. And I'm I'm hoping that people realize, um, despite the legacy of controversy around um, her estate and her papers, there's a lot more access than you might assume. It pretty much functions as a standard um, university or private archive. You can go in there, you can go through the boxes, you can see all the stuff. So mm-hmm.
0: where, where are these uh, papers?
1: Well, they're privately held. They're held by the Ayn Rand Institute. I see. Um, and I think uh, it's in Irvine, California. And It is both an advocacy uh, organization, or Ayn Rand Institute is an advocacy organization. So they're objectivists, they promote Rand's philosophy. You'll see them writing op-eds on TV. Um, They sponsor the Ayn Rand essay contest where, you know, high school students can write essays on the Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged. They give away quite a bit of money for those essays, um, Mm -hmm. great prize money. And so that's that's sort of the legacy, uh, and that's controlled or, or based upon um her last remaining heir, who has the copyright to all her works and owns her private papers. And then embedded within that Ayn Rand Institute is the Ayn Rand Archives.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: they are in a unique position for an archive in that they're both you know, advocating her ideas and preserving her legacy. So it's not quite as if they were in the Library of Congress, let's say, although there's a small percentage of her papers in the Library of Congress. Um, so I think that's also you know, been difficult or, or confusing for people to navigate. It's not as if they're going to a presidential library or a university library where the procedures are, are really standard and it's it's really easy to figure out what's going on. Um, but this archive has really professionalized over the course of the eight years I worked on this project. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I, I'm hopeful that this book will kind of alert people. There is a lot of documentary material here, and it's relevant not just to Rand, but to Anyone interested in the the worlds that she intersected with, whether it's political conservatism in Hollywood in the 1940s, or uh, you know American views on architecture, uh, you know there's there's a lot there that can be pulled out.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean you were it must have been terrific to go into the archive and be the second person to actually look through the papers. I, I envy you very much that experience. Um, so let's talk about uh, Rand's life uh, from the beginning because she comes out of a an interesting milieu and one that I know a little bit about because I've studied Russian history. She was born Alisa Zinovievna Rosenbaum, uh, not Ayn Rand. So why don't you t- pick the story up there? What, what, Where was she born and into what kind of family and how did this shape her later thought?
1: So she was born in Petrograd uh, in 1905 in Russia and Um, She came from an affluent background, although her father was really a self-made man. There's not too much information on his origins. Um, He was able to get a university education in a very limited Jewish quota, um, went into chemistry, which was, you know, a a good, safe major or good, safe focus for um, someone of his ethnicity and background at that time, and then um, emigrated to Petrograd, where he started his business, and then um her mother Anna was um from a, a more cultured and wealthy background her family were tailors and they had um a specialty in doing the uniforms um of the SARS officers mm-hmm. apparently they were excellent tailors so they had they had connections in high places they had a good business um and the two of them together uh once they were married had a you know were able to provide a, a very um high standard of living for their children and alisa mm-hmm there was their eldest daughter and so that you know they own their the whole apartment building where the business was and the family lived it was really an extended kinship network um you know many of the families lived together worked together went to school together and um and it was mostly uh rand's mother's family that were all in petrograd Mm -hmm. so you know by her account uh Rand framed herself as sort of an individualist from the beginning. Um, she had a difficult relationship with her mother and with her extended family, and sort of felt like, as she described it as a mature adult again, this is her reflection and her self presentation. You know, I felt like I was different from my family, and anything that I really cared about had to be mine and not my family's. um And you see that playing out in an early age when she decides, I'm an atheist. by her accounting, this was you know she was about age twelve when she decided. I don't believe in God, and her family was nominally religious. Um, you know, they did a seder each year, they did some ritualistic observances, but mm-hmm. um, you know, they they were much more secularized um, than the sort of Jews of the Pale. Um, so, in terms of how it influenced her, in my book, I really focus on this moment when she's uh, 12 years old, when her father's um, shop is nationalized, her father's chemistry shop is nationalized, and that's sort of the opening scene in the book because. For her, that encapsulated so many of the themes that would power her later work. This idea that her father, a producer, a hardworking, moral man, had had his property taken and had his property taken in the name of an ideal of helping other people. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of started this deep seated suspicion of when people talk about helping others, who's paying the price? What's really going on under the surface? And so from then on, Rand would never. Um, take anything at face value, she was kind of burrowed under the surface to see what's really happening here. when people talk about, um, you know, helping others and being, um, uh, you know, any, any of these great moral virtues, she would always look very suspiciously at, okay, if you're helping others, you know, where's the money coming from, where's the production coming from, who's, who's actually paying for this, mm-hmm. um, whether it was a welfare program or the idea of, a, a nationalized state run economy, mm-hmm. um, so that, that really sort of sets her, um, sets her basic impression. And she also described her father, uh, obviously, as being very individualistic, very opposed to the communist regime. And he, um, you know, passed these ideas on to her as well. Now, from that starting point, as I show in the book, there's a lot of different developments and growth in, in those basic ideas as she figures out how to express them in her fiction and mm-hmm. how they fit in with the, the other. Uh, people she's reading and ideas she's gathering. Mm
0: -hmm. The the thing I find very interesting is the the fact that she, uh, in in precisely this revolutionary milieu, uh, among um, uh, kind of uh, Russian-Jewish culture in uh, Petersburg, that she drifted to the right, I I won't really call it the right, but she she drifted in the direction of Nietzsche, really, whereas my impression is, uh, again, I haven't studied in a long time, but I've talked to people who have that most of the culturally j- Jewish residents of St. Petersburg had drifted to the um, had drifted to the left. A-, a classic example of somebody who's right from this milieu is Trotsky, who uh, yes. was was Jewish, and and so were actually uh, quite a few of the early Bolsheviks. But uh, was this? Uh, yeah, no, that's uh,
1: the great rap on you know communism. It's you know very you know it's a Jewish ideology or this or that, and so I think. In many cases, Rand really does kind of point to, well, things aren't quite what you think they are. And that may – I don't know enough about the circumstances of, of all of those, of revolutionaries you're mentioning. It may have to do with her class position yeah. because they had so much to lose and they did lose yeah. so much in the revolution. Um so but but it is interesting and it sort of marks her her, her uniqueness from the, the sociological trend yeah. of her, her
0: uh... I mean I should say that I could be completely incorrect about this. that the uh the culturally uh Jewish uh revolutionaries that we know about um are, are all quite famous because of years and years of, of study of the Russian Revolution. Um and, mm-hmm. and, and for all I know it could be the case that most wealthy Russian Jews from Saint Petersburg uh were um uh, royalists, or at least constitutionalists. I just don't know. And I know who to ask, though. Uh, there are people that study these things. Ben Nathans or Johan Petrovsky Stern, I think you cite Ben's book. And yeah, Ted, Ted yeah. Weeks and might know as well. Uh, I don't know. I they're out there, that, why don't you call us and tell us? I...
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think that there is more to be done on exploring Rand's Russian roots yeah. um, and, and how they sort of fit into her later thought. And, you know, when I meet Russian historians, a lot of them have interesting connections to draw between you know, traditions in Russian literature and Russian philosophy that she, um, that you can see running through her work. Um, that's not something I dug into mm-hmm. in great depth because it's not my area. Of
0: yeah, no, sure. Well, then she does something very unusual. She, I mean, they remain there. They get kicked around a little bit by the Bolsheviks who expropriated mm-hmm. most everything. Uh, she goes to university.
2: Right. She goes
1: to, believe it or not, Leningrad State University. Right. Um, which is just kind of amazing when you think of what would yep. you learn at Lenin Grad State U. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um I mean that's another sign of of her her milieu how much her family valued education.
2: Yeah.
1: Um and 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 wanted their daughters to be educated. And again she kind of snuck in at this moment where she was actually permitted as a woman to go to university among the first class permitted and permitted as a Jew to go to the university. Two two obstacles that would have made it difficult. Um uh-huh. so that takes her out of this um private social uh world of her of her family and puts her in the in the larger world but she wasn't um you know very enthusiastic about what she learned in university and it was a very tumultuous time politically curriculum was being remodeled things were changing it seems that one of the major things she took from the university was that you could find, you could take any idea, any statement, any piece of history, any work of literature and sort of burrow down to its hidden political implications Mm -hmm. because that was what the Soviet authorities were doing. They were scrutinizing the curricula, the professors, the Mm -hmm. things they talked about, the things they studied and saying, this is bourgeois, it's wrong, this is counter-revolutionary, it's wrong, or, oh, this is good, this is communist. Mm -hmm. So I think that sort of trained her in this methodology of, Getting under the surface and going down to the root and saying what are the what are the deepest implications of this mm-hmm. um, and that was something that would um, give her great insight in certain areas and then in other areas, I think lead her to conclusions that were um, somewhat far fetched or not accurate, as you see later in the book when she gets in these um huge fights with people because she makes assumptions about where they're coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, people who would be allied with her politically but um because they're not speaking the same language she gets very uh upset at, at their the the hidden implications of what she sees their thought to be. Mm-hmm. Um so mm-hmm. so it's sort of I think rather than content it was the form in terms of how to understand um ideas and um and history and, and everything is having an ultimate political valence that you could figure out and then make a decision based on that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that this um, paranoid conspiratorial style comes right out of the uh, Bolshevik context because the Bolsheviks uh, were not only uh, conspiratorial in their thinking, they were in fact a conspiracy. Uh, So they knew conspiracies very well. Uh, And and I do think she picks up on that, but I, I guess one thing that, came to my mind while I was reading uh, about her life at this time was how she constructed really the mirror image of Marxism in a kind of epistemological sense. And that is that, you know, the the Bolsheviks and the Marxists at this time felt that you could never escape your class background. That everything you did had been determined by your parentage and your economic position and so on and so forth, and and she rejects all of this in in objectivism, saying that in fact the, uh, the a true a truly human person would uh, determine themselves. They determine what they want to do by the light of reason, and and this is of right. course not not a, what the Bolsheviks or the Marxists said at all. Uh, but but I, I did fi- I did find it interesting she came to that, I, and I, I, I guess. That that the influence, uh, I mean, to my mind, the influence of Nietzsche is very strong here. Uh, He he said most of this.
1: Well, the other thing I would add is that, um, in terms of her creating an an inversion of Marxism, to some degree that was exactly what she wanted to do. And in the early 40s, this was a lot of what um, I found in the archive that was really interesting to me when she became politically aware in the United States. And she one of the ways she became politically aware was um, reading uh, novels that she would send back to her family to translate. Mm -hmm. And she would pick through and figure out which novels would be accepted by the Russian authorities, the ones Mm -hmm. that were leaning left,
2: Mm -hmm. basically,
1: the sort of quasi-socialist tales Mm -hmm. um, written by, you know, the American left was very strong in the 1930s. And so she was reading all this literature. And then when she started doing political advocacy, she felt like, people are very uneducated about these basic principles and basic ideas, and she basically thought the left has really successfully propagandized Americans into collectivism. Mm-hmm. And in order to fight it, what we're going to have to do is propagandize them about individualism.
2: Mm-hmm. And so she
1: really you know, got that idea, and you can see it go into how she um, – finished The Fountainhead and how she thought of The Fountainhead. Mm -hmm. She thought of it as an anti-New Deal work. Mm -hmm. You know, she thought this book is striking a blow against the New Deal. And I, as an artist and a writer, my role here is to create a new propaganda, a new literature, a new cultural standing on which we can build an individualistic politics as Mm -hmm. opposed to collectivist politics. So she she really hit on the importance of culture. Um, and did what she could to transform the culture so that um, eventually political or social change could follow. And she always believed that intellectual change came first,
2: started Mm -hmm. with the
1: fundamentals, and then things would play out. So throughout her career, she would say, it's earlier than you think. Mm -hmm. It's earlier than you think. We need to lay this foundation before the changes can actually happen. And after every political candidate that she became interested in, Goldwater was really the last sort of Um, time she allowed herself to hope that a political candidate could do the change she would ultimately conclude we're getting ahead of ourselves here Mm -hmm. we have to start with the basics and you see that carry into uh, the libertarian movement and the libertarian party in this emphasis on education Um, you know a lot of libertarian organizations today are focused on education on reaching college students Mm -hmm. on reaching graduate students on reaching professors and this is part of the idea that we need to change the ideas before we can change the policies or the politics.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, they got to me in Kansas. I told you about that. So they it, did. yeah, they did. Yeah. The That's uh, right. <laughs> the uh the, the 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 thing I I guess I wanted to say as well that uh, we see another parallel here between her intellectual style and um that of the Bolsheviks and you you've sort of hinted at it, but you know, this idea that um all art is somehow a, a vehicle for political thought. This, this is right out of uh, the Bolshevik canon. And, and, you know, they had literally canonized it in uh, the movement of socialist realism, which, of course, she knew about. Uh, so it, it's, I guess it's, um,
2: it's, it's, it's,
0: it's interesting to me that, that, she, uh, that she adopted that kind of tact. She wasn't an art for art's sake kind of person. She just didn't buy that at all.
1: Well, it's later, it's interesting because later in her career, it's not so much um, that art, you know, reflects your politics or, or, but art reflects your sense of, of, uh, existence, Mm -hmm. you know, and art is a metaphysical estimate of man's existence, she would say. So that led her to be very skeptical about modern art, about realist, um, realism in literature, anything that sort of emphasized the dark and depraved side of, humankind she would say well that you know that's really reflecting a sort of corrupt moral consciousness Mm -hmm. and in her view um that's why she was trying to create heroic characters that would inspire and uplift because this was you know reflective of her view of of humanity in general so there is this sort of transition from the political view to later in her career when she's more focused on philosophy to the philosophic Mm -hmm. um underpinnings
0: i I found it fascinating that one of her uh Favorite barbs, one of her favorite um, phrases or modes of attack against her critics was she would call people, she would say they have low self-esteem.
2: Right. <laughs> I,
0: I, I laughed several times when I when I read her saying those things because it's right. really typical of her, you know.
1: It is, and that is actually um, probably marks the influence of Nathaniel Brandon Um who is it and I'm sure we'll cover this yeah, at some point, you know, him, yeah. really who, um, Nathaniel Brandon went on to write the seven principles of self-esteem and sort of become a guru of the self-esteem movement in the seventies and eighties. Which is another just fascinating Rand connection um, that I, that I wish I had you know, another uh, two books to explore. Um, but, so that's interesting. When she's saying self-esteem, that's the point of her closest engagement with Brandon and his mm-hmm. conception of the importance of self-esteem is coming out mm-hmm. in, uh, in in those insults. You're right. She mm-hmm. also um, bad premises was another yeah. uh, okay. premises
2: are confused. Check your
0: premises. Premise. That's what these guys would always say when I was in high school. the uh, <laughs> Let's get her. Let's get her out of. Uh, let's get her out of Russia. She uh, before she leaves Russia, she somehow decides she wants to be a screenwriter or she wants to be a writer. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, and again, this is something that's hard to disentangle from the elder Rand's recollection. So a lot of what we know about her childhood comes from some interviews she taped in the 60s, in the early 60s with Barbara Brandon. Um, and then other bits and pieces have been reconstructed from letters and, um, you know, and inquiries in Russia. So she frames it as she always knew she wanted to be a writer um, from the beginning. And she used to make up stories. Um, for her uh, sisters. And I, I think that, you know, the story goes, she was, she was on vacation and she saw um, a poster of some sort about a play or a movie, probably it was a play, and then she realized that she could write stories herself. So she frames her ambition to be an author as having started very young and, according to her, you know, wrote many scenarios which have all been lost. And then, but really the first thing that captured her attention was cinema. Um, you know, when she left college, philosophy was something she was privately interested in, but she really wanted to write for the movies. And I think part of it was just sheer escapism. The Watching foreign films helped her survive being in Russia because it helped her imagine there's another place I can get to. Um, And so that was that was her ambition. She did sometimes say, oh, I will start with movies and then I'll move on to novels or something else. But she was really focused on screenplays and movies
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, when she left Russia. And that was, incidentally, how she got out of Russia. It's very um, it's very unusual that she was able to, one, get out of Russia and, two, get into the United States, um, given the immigration restrictions that were just coming down. And so her family in the United States owned uh, movie theaters they were you know among the first uh, owners uh, in Chicago, and so what they argued to the Soviet Union was um, she studied film in in russia she 's now going to America to learn more about American movies, and then she 'll come back and help the Russian movie industry get
2: started mm-hmm.
1: and so they they bought this
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and she had you know she did have this evidence i 'm going to um Chicago, where the Lipsky family was part of her, some of her related to the Rosenbaums, they had a theater. Mm-hmm. So that was what enabled her to get out. Um, she knew at the time, everybody knew at the time, that she wasn't coming back.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So uh, she uh, goes to Chicago via New York City, and it's at that point that uh, she adopts her new name. Is that correct? I don't remember exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And how did how she um, and- get this strange name?
1: Well, this, again, is a, another fertile source of controversy and myth. Um, for a while, there was a story that she named herself after her Remington Rand typewriter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, that had wide currency, and it's since been demonstrated that wasn't possible because the typewriters uh, didn't exist at the time she chose the name. And also, um, now that the archive has gone through the letters, that came from her family, so none of the letters Rand wrote to her family have been saved. Obviously, they were destroyed in Russia, but the ones they sent to her were preserved, and there are thousands of pages of them. And we can see from the letters that she was thinking about Rand um, in Russia. So mm-hmm. there was references from her family to this name, and she was thinking about the, um, the, the first name Lil was one, Lil Rand. So that was one option, and then in Wait, terms of where she got
0: – I was going to say, isn't Lil Rand a rapper? no way, that was a joke.
1: I don't I'm know. Sorry, I don't know. I'm Lil <laughs> Rand.
0: I Go ahead. I'm sorry. So, anyway. um,
1: so then she, um, then she offered sort of differing explanations across her life. Um, she mm-hmm. said that Ein was derived from a, um, a Finnish writer, um, whose name she liked and that she just sort of composite made it up. Um, there's also this sort of rumor that, Ein was an abbreviation of uh, a diminutive her father used for her, Yella, and that was something that William F. Buckley um, repeated as it was fact, and there's a few, there's some anecdotal evidence that, you know, she spoke to someone in the 60s and said, yes, that, you know, they said, is this where your name came from, and she said yes, and the diminutive Ayniella means, um I'm definitely mangling that pronunciation, it means bright eyes or big eyes, mm. so the 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 story goes oh her father gave her this nickname and then she Mm -hmm. picked it up but that's very unclear because there's also this idea it's from the Finnish writer and then she told many different stories but what was interesting is that in her life in America aside from her family nobody knew what her real name was and she hid it she really was very um, worried lest anyone find out her real name she thought it would have grave repercussions for her family in Russia Mm -hmm. Um, so people took this as her given name Um, and she did legally she was uh, Mrs. Frank Mm O'Connor so she'd sign herself Ayn Rand Mm -hmm. O'Connor but uh, yeah nobody knew it was uh, a name she had really made up and in fact early in her career a lot of people assumed she was a man and there's these sort of wonderful fan letters to Mr. Rand and and I would reply, uh, I'm not a man, but I'm so glad you think I am.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> just, I would, uh, take it as a compliment. <laughs> but there's
0: you know, there's another Bolshevik connection here, a kind of drawing on Bolshevik culture, and that is that the Bolsheviks all renamed themselves. Trust me, yeah. you know, again, is a great example. I mean, they all took uh, pseudonyms and they kept them. They didn't
1: dispense
0: them. I mean,
1: I tend to put it in a closer context of, of American movies. Yeah. Um I mean, absolutely common to move to Hollywood and change your name. Very common for um, Jews working in the industry to change yep. their name, to make it yep. you know shorter, more Americanized. Um, and so, uh, and also, just in terms of Rand, it really was she was creating herself anew, and she mm-hmm. was naming herself. Mm-hmm. And that just has such symbolic import for her as someone who would become an individualistic philosopher. Of course, she had to name herself rather than accept a name that was given to her by somebody mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: mm-hmm. Self-creation. That's exactly right.
2: Self creation, yeah, absolutely. So
0: then she, uh, quite extraordinarily, just goes to Hollywood, uh, and uh, and she gets a big break, right? Am yeah, right? she yeah. really does. Yeah,
1: gets a big break. Meets Cecil B. DeMille. Um, you know, Rand had a way of turning on the charm at the the most critical moments. I mean, she did have a great deal of charisma, some negative charisma, as, as many people have said, but but strong doses of positive charisma, and she managed to charm Cecil B. DeMille. Um, she managed to charm her husband Um, and I think a lot of what that came from was she was very guileless she wasn't a manipulator Um, she just didn't understand how to do that it wasn't part of her makeup and so she had a sort of freshness and innocence about her that people were drawn to especially earlier in her life so she gets the big break and on the one hand it's a lucky break on the other hand she had kept a film journal in Russia she ranked over 300 films in great detail (laughs) plot story actors construction, so she did know what she was talking about when it came mm-hmm. to movies. I mean she'd done a very thorough study of movies up to that point. um she was not early in in this phase of her career successful at getting any of her own scenarios accepted they you know they were sort of raw and unfinished, but she would um make changes to ones that existed mm-hmm. and so I mean, she spent a good deal of time in Hollywood for a while. She had work in the film industry. She went through a period of unemployment that was very difficult. And then as her writing developed, was eventually able to start making a living as a writer, which had always been her goal.
0: Uh-huh. And but how, how does she do that? I mean, how does she make the transition from writing or doctoring scripts to producing her own material, her first uh, Scream. I, I don't remember what the, it was named, but it was something having to do with it was anti-Soviet, something or other, wasn't it?
1: Right, right. Yeah. She um, she's just writing in her off hours, you know, writing, 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 and she's reading a lot, um, going to the library, reading as much as she can, trying to you know improve her English. And here she really is self-taught. Uh-huh. Um, she g- gets English lessons and has the basic rudiments of English when she gets to the United States, but from then on, it's just slogging through. Uh, reading in English and, and getting herself together. And so her first um, scenario is this sort of melodramatic love story set in Soviet Russia, and it's sold successfully. at a t- I guess that there's sort of a boom for uh, Russian stories in Hollywood at the time. Mm-hmm. And so it's bought by a studio, but it's never produced. But that gives her enough money to start focusing um, more on her own writing. And from there, she works on... Um, we the Living, which will be her first novel, and then she comes up with um, this great play, Night of January 16th, which is still a staple of summer stock because it's a courtroom play, mm-hmm. and then the jury is selected from the audience, <laughs> and then is allowed to actually vote. And then there's two endings for the play. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book.
2: Mm-hmm. Depending on
1: how the jury votes, the play you know concludes one way or concludes the other. And so, and and Rand wrote it so that it's not obvious, you know, who committed the crime or why. And so her hope was that your the philosophical assumptions of the audience would come to the fore in their vote. Mm-hmm. And so this was, you know, one of her first and or most successful early attempt at marrying propaganda and and art, um, because it was both meant to be an exciting story and sort of reveal the the morality or, or philosophical assumptions of her audience. Mm-hmm and so she had these you know very serious ideals underlining the the plot and the story and there's it's very heavily tinctured by Nietzsche and the producer who ultimately bought the play and took it to Broadway what he saw was this is a great gag audiences are going to love it mm-hmm. um and in fact they did and I, there's a news article I like, I think Helen Keller was one of the jury once you know mm-hmm. and so famous people would would come and see the play and so it became very successful so that was really her big break financially, but she really hated the fact that the play was turned into, um, a sort of popular moneymaker and a lot of the implications she'd built into the story just were completely ignored or not understood.
2: So, Mm -hmm.
1: um, But it was as she was working on that, she was also working on selling her first novel. And then once night of January 16th went into production, she had plenty of money, so she was able to just work full-time on what would eventually become The Fountainhead.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how did she – so she does write a couple of books here. We the Living is one of them. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, the other one is um, Anthem, which reminded me a lot of – Zamyatin's *We*, which is a book that I'm sure she knew, because uh, yes. it's a dystopian sort of thing. It's cribbed a couple of times, notably by George Orwell. Uh, but in the event, uh, she writes these books, and they have so, they have some limited success. How does she come up with the idea of *The Fountainhead*?
2: Well, as
1: she describes it, there was sort of this um, moment when she she had an acquaintance in Hollywood. Um, who is a sort of ambitious, striving career woman, much like Rand herself, but she really didn't like this woman. And so she asked her, um, you know, what what motivates you or uh, what's important to you? And this woman responded with um, basically saying, you know, the other, you know, if anyone has a car, I want two cars. If people have two cars, I want two cars. Basically saying, I want what other people have. I want more than what other people have and measuring success solely in terms of material goods and, Relative to the material goods that other people have. So basically, I want more than other people. That's my standard mm-hmm. of success. And for Ram, this was sort of a revelation. Um, Again, it it was so foreign to her psychology to compare herself to other people and to measure herself against other people that she was sort of shocked to discover that many people in this world are, in fact, motivated by what others think of them. And so from there, she pulled out the concept of the Mm second-hander, which would be somebody who's motivated by the beliefs or thoughts or opinions of others. And then she would contrast that to how she thought people should be, which was individualistic doing things because they wanted to do them, their own goals, their own desires, and not really caring or noticing what other people thought or felt about them. So that gave her the kind of uh, duality she was looking for. And she's a very binary thinker. It's one of the basic sort of sets of her mind. So now she had the, the two poles, and from there it was slowly filling in the picture of how these two poles would look in operation. Um, You know, she then discovered architecture would be a good way for her to um, flesh out these characters. And then over time, it acquired a political valence as she began understanding collectivism as related to second-handedness and individualism, you know, as related to sort of good old-fashioned Americanism or the the traditional way of doing things with limited Mm -hmm. government and laissez-faire capitalism. So Mm -hmm. these ideas, which started as sort of psychological or philosophical, acquire over time political meaning as she becomes more attuned to American politics and becomes to identify herself as a Roosevelt opponent. Um, And then it's, it's added to with a great deal of research. She did really painstaking research, and that's one of the book's strengths because Uh, Left to her own devices, Rand came up with very fanciful and imaginative um, ideas, and she sometimes needed research to kind of um, pin her down and solidify her ideas and make them more convincing. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. I I guess one of the things that was a revelation to me, I'm not an American historian, but uh, I think that we've largely now forgotten that there was huge opposition to uh, the New Deal and uh, that she was aware of this. And and she was writing to an audience that was sizable and influential. Uh, Absolutely. And and this is, again, something that has been, I believe that idea is buried under the Roosevelt (laughs) Monument in Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. And it's
1: also interesting because this opposition to Roosevelt was largely economic in nature. Yeah. Um, And I think as conservatism over the course of the century became really identified with religion and religious conservatism, this economic Mm -hmm. piece sort of dropped out, and so... One thing I did want to do in the book is recover that history and mm-hmm. say, um, you know, it's not just about the 60s. It didn't start with Richard Nixon. It started a long time ago and that, um, you know, the New Deal it aroused a lot of opposition among some some very powerful people. It took them a long time to get their message together and get mm-hmm. it heard. But, you know, it was the 30s where mm-hmm. a lot of these ideas um, against you know the welfare state and against expanding government were first articulated and first germinated, and then um, mm-hmm. over the course of the century they developed and merged with other trends of thought. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that was something I hope to recover as part of this project.
0: Yeah, you did a nice job of it because it was. Uh, it's, it's clear that uh, that at least using my memory as the metric, which is not probably a very good one. I I, I don't really know much about the opposition to the New Deal in the 1930s and 40s. So it was, as I say, a kind of revelation to me that she thought of this as an anti-New Deal book, uh, which is, you know, again, it's quite a remarkable statement to make about a a work of fiction. But let's move quickly uh, to the results of her efforts. And The Fountainhead becomes a big hit after she sells it, doesn't it?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And um, this is sort of... One, in in publishing lore one of the amazing success stories because it really was sold primarily through word of mouth. Um and there's sort of uh, the 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 Ayn Rand encounter or the Ayn Rand phase really started hitting with the fountainhead, um people, you know, looking to it as sort of a source of inspiration and guidance and um it's It was a slow it was not the publisher did not expect it to sell well mm-hmm. um and they were astounded every time they had to reissue it and reissue it and reissue it and it really it kept going um you know over for five years ten years, and it, it was given a boost also um Rand at that time was a close friend of Isabel Patterson who was a very prominent book reviewer, and she didn't review the book, but she would talk about Rand frequently in her columns, so mm-hmm. she's kind of putting her name and the book's name in circulation and then Once she got the movie contract, there was wide coverage of the movie contract itself, who would be in the film, you know, and then the film itself came out in 1949. Um, But the the novel itself has a sort of staying power um, beyond anything that was done to promote it, you know, and is still still being read and discovered today. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is, um, you know, Rand wrote the story on many different levels. There's this political parable. There's a, a... parable about being true to yourself, um, a lot of, you know, psychological um, exploration of psychology and morality and motivation of the self. And so people can really take a lot of different things from it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: it's, you know, it's one of her, it's one of, it's a book that I probably enjoy the most out of her, all of that she's written.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I've never read it. I, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I, I watched my mother carry it around a lot, but uh, I, I, I never read it. I, the, those books are too big for me. I can't. Uh,
2: they are. Yeah, they they require yeah.
1: uh, commitment, for well, sure. Well,
0: they also, it, well, interestingly, also, they they seem to require amphetamines as well uh, to write because <laughs> she became a speed freak, didn't she? I,
1: well, yeah, she became a regular user of amphetamines, absolutely, and um, they really sort of kicked in for the final stages of editing the book, um and then it was something that she used for the rest of her life and um you uh-huh. know, I think that this this had bad consequences for her and um it's interesting one of the things that um I was able to do in the in the archive is look at photographs of her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just binders and binders of photographs and there's um it's after the Fountainhead, it's when she's in California producing the movie. There's a couple of years where maybe it's just a year or a few months, she's loses an enormous amount of weight and yeah. it's just really shocking to suddenly see these pictures of her i mean she's bony she's mm-hmm. thin and yeah. she never was a thin woman so there's that to me is okay she really was using it a lot here and then yeah. at some mm-hmm. point um she gains the weight back again but it was in so from that evidence from letters from what her friends say this is something she did regularly she was sort of a low energy person in general and and but very driven and so she used um these medications to kind of drive herself to, to 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 power her work and her writing. Yeah. Um again something that was pretty common um among writers is you know Benzedrine had sort of a cult following and you know Jack Kerouac wrote on the road in 3 weeks with just taking Benzedrine for
0: And weeks, and, and, and for it personal. shows I have to say you know really Yeah, shows. yeah.
1: So that's an interesting piece of sort of American literary culture, um, you know, writing under the influence. Um, And who knows? It's probably still happening today, but, you know, probably Ritalin or some prescription drug. um, Sure
0: it is. But I mean, I think I think one thing that can be said is that these drugs, they will make you psychotic. uh, And -hmm. and especially if they are uh, uh, they are consumed in large quantities. And in her later life, after Atlas Shrug appears, as people who read the book will find out, she becomes increasingly erratic. Uh, she right. behaves in ways which are not only inconsistent with general mores, but inconsistent with her own philosophy. Uh, so she is, as, as to, to put it in uh, colloquial terms, she's not thinking straight. And uh, I have to think that that might have something to do with her drug addiction. But
2: uh, Yeah, you know, and it,
1: it's, it really is very damaging to her. I think there, there are tendencies, um, you know, in her personality already that this drug really, really exacerbates. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, no, she becomes so extraordinarily was, extreme and inflexible. Uh, and right, and if
1: she, if she was never um, a moderate to begin with in any sense of the term, um, but I think that um, there is a good case to be made that these these chemicals just kind of tweaked her further. And you can yeah. see she has this close friend in the 40s, Isabel Patterson, and Patterson is like, stop taking it. Yeah. And she writes her again and again, you know, I'm going to come out there and spank you if you don't stop taking it. She says, I don't care what the doctor says. And Rand always says she go to the doctor and ask, and the doctor says it's fine. Um, Well, you know, smoking was also fine back then, and so um, it's too bad. She has some warnings, but, um, you know, she follows the medical advice, thinks it's fine, and it becomes – just becomes part of – part of
0: her lifestyle really yeah, well, um. yeah and what a lifestyle it was let's talk a little bit about so she uh, writes the fountainhead to great success becomes a kind of an intellectual celebrity then she writes uh, atlas shrugged uh, which is a, an even bigger book and um we don't have a lot of time to talk about it but it also hammers home some of these objectivist theses but the thing i'd, I'd like to hear you talk about a little bit is the formation of uh what did she call it the collective or um, is that right the right. Co- the collective, yes. I'd like to. I'd like to hear about the kind of uh, the, the creation of this coterie of. I want to call them sycophants, but uh, the, I'm a critical person. Let's call them uh, <laughs> uh, acolytes. I don't know. What do you want to call them?
1: I think acolytes is a is a pretty good t- term. Students, acolytes, followers. Um, the uh, w- what I what I think is significant here in the context of the book, particularly, is this group forms. Um, primarily out of the devotion of a young couple, uh, Barbara Brandon and Nathaniel Brandon. Um, and there's much more to be said about the relationship, but I'll just leave it at that for now. And then they sort of draw in their friends, their associates, most famously among them is Alan Greenspan is a member of this early group. And what it really marks is Rand's departure from this broader intellectual and social world of the right, where she was very active and very engaged since pre-Fountainhead, you know, since the late 30s into the early 50s she has a wide range of contacts and networks and is really embedded in this 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 libertarian conservative political world when the collective forms that gives her another outlet and you see her shifting away from these these other contacts with you know published writers and adults and thinkers of her own age to a group of um... students or acolytes that are all much younger than her and she becomes the sort of unquestioned authority on everything to them And so that's where you see this narrowing of her thought again because she's not exposed to the influences that helped shape her earlier in her career. Um, And then there's this really uh, feverish energy about her in the inner circle, and that becomes the nucleus of the objectivist movement, which is spread primarily through the Nathaniel Brandon Institute, which is headquartered in New York. But there's these tape transcription courses that people take where they um, sign up for the course get a tape recording of Brandon lecturing on Rand's philosophy and they you know meet once a week in somebody's home and listen to these lectures. And so it becomes this intellectual community that's held together um by the Nathaniel Brandon Institute and also by her newsletter, starts as the objectivist newsletter, then becomes the objectivist and these the steady stream of nonfiction she's publishing throughout the nineteen sixties. So that really makes Rand into a public intellectual on her own terms. She's rebuffed by the mainstream magazines, the sort of mandarins of high culture and opinion. She says, whatever, I'm going to do it my way and creates this whole organization. And it should be noted here, this was Brandon's idea. He was sort of the motive power behind it, um, but it was, it was Rand was the primary draw of this movement and of the classes. And so then she she forms her own subculture, really, her own intellectual universe, and this will um, disintegrate spectacularly uh, in the late sixties and it then becomes embedded in the libertarian movement, conservative youth culture, and at that point, you know, Rand becomes almost a peripheral figure to the movement and the ideas she's inspired and she started mm-hmm. and that was some of the most interesting part of the book to write. I had a strong suspicion that she was very influential in libertarianism and the libertarian movement. And when I started doing the research, I was just astounded mm-hmm. at how influential she was. And it was mm-hmm. almost a, a research challenge. There's so much material here. How do I pick um, of just a few things to mm-hmm. show what's happening here? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, I think, is another part of the story that's not very well known. And that sort of connects this 30s uh, political consciousness I was talking about the 30s opposition to Roosevelt takes it right through to the 1970s, the 80s and 90s and beyond and shows that these ideas are not fringe they're not marginal, they're they're a part of American political culture and they have been for the entire century mm-hmm. um, and so I think Rand is a great lens for showing how these ideas that you don't hear about you don't learn about um, are, are a palpable presence in our lives and always have been mm-hmm. Um you know, no, I think I
0: think I think you're entirely right, which is why my mother, the junior high school teacher in the middle of Kansas, was wandering around reading, at the shrugden. Um,
1: yeah, and I mean, things. Rand is ubiquitous. She really is, and it's just, um, you know, heretofore nobody's really sat down and excavated what does it mean that people are carrying around Ayn Rand books everywhere you go. Yeah, and so I mean, they were. that's yeah. really what my book tries to do is to say here's some of the implications and consequences of her enormous and continued popularity.
0: Yeah, one of the things I think that I should point out, uh, and you do a nice job of shedding light on this in the book, is that in the late 1950s and early 1960s, when uh, she is enjoying her greatest literary success, this is precisely the time at which uh, conservatism is going off in an entirely different direction and one she doesn't like at all. And that is basically toward, uh, for want of a better word, organized religion. uh, Because she's an atheist, and and so she, she doesn't like this. Uh, and, and
1: this is go on.
0: Go ahead, go ahead. Please.
1: So I was just gonna say this is why I use the term the American right rather than conservative.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because it doesn't make sense to call Rand a conservative mm-hmm. because she's not socially conservative, she and she is an atheist, a very outspoken atheist, yeah. and most conservatism takes religion as a starting point. But but I with this term the American right, I mean to draw attention to this secular right that mm-hmm. limited government, pro capitalist doesn't necessarily have anything to do with religion. And that's part of this ideological mix. It's, part of, it's that part of that part of the political spectrum. And again, it's been sort of overshadowed by the dominance of religion. And so I also wanted to say, you know, it's not just about conservatism. There's plenty of other people who are on the right who aren't conservative, and a lot of Rand's ideas are very revolutionary. Um, yeah. They would... You know they're they're radical, and she called herself a radical for capitalism, mm-hmm. and that was sort of the banner under which her young followers came to her now, whether they stayed radical or they turned conservative, that's another set of uh of issues and i I do follow that in the book because um not everybody stays in the in the place they start with ran, but I think that's um, that doesn't diminish her significance because they often take a few key pieces from her and then you know move on in other directions
2: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. no i mean it 's an interesting moment because you know she sometimes things break for her and sometimes they break against her and I think this is one of the instances in which uh is the early sixties in which they 're sort of breaking against her and she she uh is 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 a person of of principle to some degree uh so she uh, will not follow them, and that is the Buckleys and so on and so forth, into what becomes modern American conservatism, this alliance between uh, r- really uh, sort of uh, orthodox Christianity of some sort or, or, or conservative Christianity and and uh, a, a kind of weak libertarianism. Um, she, she maintains her own, her kind of, she plans yeah, her flag so and stays the- there, yeah.
1: They are very, um, uh, they're very wary and very leery of her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in fact, they're scared of her. And you can see Buckley sort of says Ayn Rand is a joke and no one should take her seriously. But he keeps returning to her again and again. And Mm -hmm. and the sort of the warning against Ayn Rand has to be issued regularly Mm -hmm. um, to make sure people aren't drawn to her. And I think he understands how powerful she is, but feels she's so in error that he, he has to be really careful and make sure that, you know the youth aren't don't fall to her sway
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but she's a very palpable threat to conservatism and what's interesting about this sort of celebration of her work on the right today is the threatening aspects of her work seem to have dropped away entirely um, mm-hmm. and no one's worried about her atheism mm-hmm. or her immorality mm-hmm. in the way they really were worried and uh about that mm-hmm. in the um in this in the sixties and then there's you know the whole there's a whole sexual piece in her novels that is another thing that conservatives find very alarming mm-hmm. or or not something they want to endorse. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. No, it's interesting in that way. Um, do you see her influence in modern politics? I'm thinking of the candidacy of Ron Paul or something like that where where does Where does Rand's thought play into american popular American politics today?
1: Well, Ron Paul is an interesting case. Um, you know, Rand would have disliked him because he does combine his libertarianism with Christianity, and that to her was sort of an untenable, inconsistent position. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Ron Paul, you know, admits to a strong like of Rand, but he comes out of a, a more Christian libertarian um, context. It's that is, you know, pretty. It's not surprising he's coming out of that that Texas worldview, um, mm-hmm. sort of combining, you know, libertarianism with 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 deep religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, you can't there's, – there's he's not the candidate to sort of draw the line. Mm-hmm. There are just legions of um, candidates and activists and thinkers and writers in the Republican Party or in libertarian organizations who have come to their views through RAND. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she's just, a, as I call her, the sort of gateway drug to the American right. She's mm-hmm. what gets the ball started for many people. Um those who can continue to academia will usually move on to you know, more technical work in economics or Milton Friedman or the Austrians. Um, mm-hmm. And most people are going to combine Rand with others on the same ideological spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I wanted to show how Rand existed with these people and how she came out of the same place because she's sort of a part of this, this libertarian stew. Um, and so it, it's rare to find a, a hardcore Randian running for office and, and talking about those beliefs. Um, just, it's really hard to get anywhere in American politics without being religious. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. Um, you see a lot of CEOs, um, out there touting the importance of Rand to them. Uh, John Allison of BB and T is one, uh, John Mackey of Whole Foods is another. Um, and you know, that's a realm where it's easier for them to just go with Rand's uh, pro capitalism and, and not feel like they have to, Um, part ways with her on on moral questions Um, Mm -hmm. I mean she really is she's all over the political right today she's been promoted by everyone from Glenn Beck to Rush Limbaugh (laughs) there's this whole trend of going Galt which is to follow the example of John Galt the hero of Atlas Shrugged and um, restrict your economic production so you're not taxed, uh, you know, suffer punitive taxation so she's become a, a real sort of touchstone of the opposition Um, today. Mm -hmm. And it's been very interesting for me to to watch because she's played this role historically. Um, You know, she started with Roosevelt. She was also um, really important to those who opposed the Great Society and Lyndon Johnson. And so it's not a surprise to me that she's been picked up again um, by people exercised over um, both the bailout and then the you know early stages of the Obama presidency, mm-hmm. and what's just interesting to me is how the the dangerous or scary parts of her work or those parts of her work that were dangerous and scary to people in the 1960s seem really to have been neutralized today. Um,
2: mm-hmm. You know
1: nobody's really worried about what she has to say about uh, or you know her depiction of of sex. Nobody's really worried about her ir- irreligiosity. Um, they just see her as a very insightful thinker who provides a warning into how expanded government um, can be very destructive to the economy.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, – I, I mean I'm I, – I guess I'm very interested in these – my own recollections of people in the 70s talking about her uh, – this is the late 70s and I'm and, um, – it was attractive to me at the time, uh but but I think that's because I was sixteen. But <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, I mean really it's uh there for it there is something about it, as I kind of say in the introduction to this interview, that is very appealing to young people in the same way that socialism is. That it seems to make things very simple. Just leave me alone to do what I want. I won't hurt you and you won't hurt me, and we'll get along fine and the world will be a better place. Uh I think there's something yeah, it's it's it, it has a a real uh, a, appeal uh, to, to, a, yeah, to a certain and, age of person.
1: You know, that's kind of the wrap on Rand, like, oh, you know, a teenager, she's just a, a writer for teenagers. And I sort of feel like, hey, like, that's actually pretty important. You yeah, know, it is, it people, is. people do a lot of reading and a lot of thinking when they're teenagers, and they yeah. pick up ideas that continue to shape how they view the world for the rest of their lives. So, um, yeah, I don't I, think that's an argument against her influence. Yeah, if I, anything, it might be the opposite.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I think that like Nietzsche is a good example because I think that he is uh, very appealing to y- very young people and very old people,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: neither of whom have really any responsibility. But uh, once you start yeah. to get, you know, once you start to get mortgage payments and kids and so on and so forth, you it becomes very difficult to, to to try to sustain a kind of Randian life. It, it can be. It can be really, really tough. I mean, I, I think that it's interesting on a, a philosophical level to think about what she had to say, and, and there's a lot of value there. And I'm a pretty conservative person, and and I, you know, I, I have libertarian tendencies. I'll admit to my audience. Uh, but you know, again, now that I'm in the position of someone who has a whole household that I contribute to. Um, I, f- I find that uh, my my collectivism is showing through. I'm sorry, I'm Yeah, William. yeah. <laughs> well I think
1: that you know, that's the 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 beauty of fiction for Rand is that she can create a universe of her own creation and individuals of her own creation yeah. and as you know Whitaker Chambers said in fact erroneously in his review of Alice Shrugged he said there are no children in this book and there there's two children in the book. Um mm-hmm. I believe. There's a brief scene where they appear but Families and children are not big parts of her worldview at all, you know, and and Rand consciously chose not to have children. um, But there's a whole series of questions about family obligations and what you owe other people in your family that um, her work doesn't really wrestle with. And the, the depiction of family, especially in Atlas Shrugged, is unremittingly negative. Mm-hmm. Um and also in the fountainhead, you know, Peter Keating has this terrible mother who's manipulating him and um in Atlas Shrugged, uh Hank Reardon's family is sort of just sucking him dry and um you know it, it makes for a good polemic, but I think um for a lot of people that's where individualism ends when you come up against just as you're saying the fact that we are embedded in in human relationships and those do mm-hmm. have claims and obligations to us, and it 's hard to you know keep this sort of idealistic individualistic stance
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, if you want to you know keep your friends and keep your family
0: <laughs> right and she didn 't want to keep her friends and her family, apparently because it had uh, disastrous consequences for her personal life. Uh, she was estranged right. from everyone who. Loved her eventually, right. except Alan Greenspan. I guess he was
2: really <laughs> principal. Yeah, <laughs> he really
0: and,
1: and he was—he was—you uh, was know—became a distant figure to her later in her life. But uh-huh. it was also a, very tolerant of her foibles. But um, yeah, essentially, um, principles were more important to her than relationships, and she viewed her friendships as as having to be intellectual in nature, not yeah. necessarily personal. And it was shocking for many of her acquaintances how quickly um, and her closest friends, how quickly she could change from affection to disapproval and how fast she was to break and break irrevocably uh, with people. Um, And I think, you know, she, she often didn't understand where other people were coming from and put her own darkest interpretations um, on their actions. And I, you know, one of the, one of the sad episodes that I cover is in the, um, final stage, you know, the last decade of her life when she discovers her long lost sister Nora um, and and has sends for her from Russia and is fully ready um, to, you know, support her sister and settle them in the United States and give them anything they need is being very generous and very warm and loving. And then her sister arrives and they start disagreeing about politics and they can never move beyond it. Um, And what's interesting here is her sister appears to be another version of Rand. Mm -hmm. You know, neither of them will sort of let go, and they spend this entire visit arguing over Russia and communism and America and um, eventually, you know, stop speaking to each other, and she leaves. And Mm -hmm. it it ends terribly. Um, And it's just – it's sad that neither of them could sort of transcend this. And, you know, her sister's – her sister's reaction, you know, indicates maybe there's something in, in Rand's family or yeah. or just her, her basic personality set that was, you know, maybe the Rosenbaum's were very stubborn, kind of principled people and had trouble getting along with each other. Um,
0: yeah, until you but, said that, until you said that, that, uh, the that, the thing about the parallel of her sister's behavior—I was going to chalk it up to the amphetamines again, but maybe you could it, pursue that angle. Because, yeah, you know yeah. Tweakers—they, uh, they're, they're really paranoid people, and they're, they're very uh, angry, and they, uh, they see things that aren't there. Uh, they really do.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, actually, I, I interviewed a guy. Uh, who wrote a book about methamphetamine addiction a uh, few weeks ago and uh you know he describes this kind of behavior this really sort of extreme bitter paranoia and uh a lot of anger and 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 you know a real inability to see the world as it is and and a kind of desire to see everything in black and white and to think that everyone is out to get you uh this this is really something that i think has a lot to do with amphetamine addiction but i again you know we don't i'm, I'm not a psycho historian i just had yeah. interviewed this well... guy about it you know
1: she also wanted to create her her a world and you know a universe in which she could live so mm-hmm. she she deliberately wrote fiction to yeah. give herself um the kind of world she wanted to be in and mm-hmm. i think she was perhaps too successful for her own good it became hard for her to go back um, you know, into, into a world that she hadn't created and, and yeah. she didn't
0: control. Yeah. Well, you know, we've taken up a huge amount of your time, Jennifer, and I could talk about this stuff all day long, uh, and I imagine that you could too, but uh, you probably have better things to do. I actually don't have better things to do. See, that's the <laughs> peculiar thing about uh, my life. The, uh, <laughs> let me uh, close the uh, interview uh, by asking you our traditional final question, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your next project?
1: Well, um, I have a couple of things underway. I'm doing a little more work on um, a friend of Rand's, uh, Rose Wilder Lane, who I talk about in the book, um, who's the daughter of the children's writer Laura Ingalls Wilder.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm working on a, an article. I'm looking at more deeply at her relationship with Rand and with Isabel Patterson, which is something I follow in the book, but I didn't fully uh, explore. And then I'm also beginning to conceptualize a new project I'm really interested in the intersections between environmental thinking and free market thinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um something I touch on really briefly in the end of the book. Um but I think there's there's some interesting parallels and intersections um there and rather than simply a black and white story of them being, you know, two ideologies that are absolutely opposed to each other or two tendencies or two traditions of thought. Mm-hmm. Um I think there's some some overlap and some interconnections that I'm starting to explore. So that's probably where I'll go next, but um, given that this book took eight years to write, um, <laughs> yeah,
2: no, <I> know <laughs> there may
1: is. be twists and turns and yeah. developments yeah. along the way. But um, I, I know how to. There's, a,
0: there's a great graveyard of. Uh, Notional projects, all historians. I have them. I have files of them, things I was going to yes,
1: read. Yes, yes. Books we to, will write.
0: Yes, books I will write. Well, anyway.
1: Probably just as long as books I will read. <laughs> yeah, no, Yeah, no,
0: it's a good, it's a good point. That's why I do this podcast. I have to read the books. I don't have any choice. Yeah. I'm on the spot. Lock it Keeps me in. literate. Yeah. So, anyway, I should tell everyone that we've been talking to Jennifer Burns about her book, Goddess of the Market Ayn Rand and the American Right. And I want to say thank you very much for being on the show, Jennifer.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: My pleasure. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jennifer Burns, author of Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.